Well, in our passage today, Jesus is communicating something powerful, very powerful about who we are as his followers and our role in the world. But one of the difficulties when you and I read the Bible is that we're going to read the Bible through the lenses of our modern view, right? And so we see and we read things and we think about them and the metaphors and the stories in light of our experience now and not necessarily with the lens of what it would be like for the original readers to hear this. And, uh, and so it's, it's a big challenge. We always, we always deal when we go to the Bible. But particularly it gets, it gets hard when you read about metaphors like salt and light because those are just normal, common, everyday things for us in our world. And so we think about salt, we think... Uh, my French fries are bland. I would like a little more salt on them, please. Or we think uh, the, of light, and we just think, man, my pen rolled under the couch, and I can't see under there. Give me a flashlight. Like, that's, that's kind of what comes to mind when we come to these things. But in Jesus' day, when he gives these metaphors to his people, they are powerful, and they pack a punch. And so what I want to do to beginning here is just to challenge us to kind of maybe look upon these metaphors with fresh eyes. And so I want to tell you a story that, um, that kind of illustrates that a little bit. And maybe to realize that uh, the idea of light, the idea of preservatives for food are really, really, really critical. And the really times when you don't, uh, when you realize that or when you don't have them. So I had a, uh, I was just out of college and I had a buddy who was, had a family, and he, but he was going on a missions trip for, I think it was about eight weeks in the summer to the other side of the world. And uh, he asked me to stop in at his house, mow his grass every couple weeks and just walk in the house and make sure everything's okay. And so about two to three weeks into his trip, I show up at his house, uh, mow the grass, go inside, and I notice the smell is a little off in his house. But we all know that when you leave your house for, for a couple weeks that things smell a little off. That's just kind of normal when the air's not running, all those kind of things. But this was a little different. This was a distinct odor. And as I moved through the house and came towards the kitchen, I was introduced to one of these little guys on the screen. That is a sewer fly. I don't know the, the technical species name, but uh, I started seeing these little guys buzz around. And I'm like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And there was a highly concentrated, significant number of them around the refrigerator. And as I moved close to the refrigerator, the smell increased. And uh, I knew what I had to do. You got to open it up, right? And I'm going to show you a picture on the screen. This was not his refrigerator. But as bad as that looks, I am not kidding when it was 10 times worse than that. There was not a square inch of their refrigerator that was not covered with some kind of sewer fly or the maggot of a sewer fly. And uh, it was unbelievable. I've, I mean, the, the, the freezer, the refrigerator, all of it. Shut it quick as I could, and I'm like, what do I do? I mean, they are literally in Thailand right now. And they've got many more weeks to go. So I dragged that thing outside the house. I did all the thing I know I could do was just to start flushing it out with water. I spent hours hosing the thing down. Literally, you know, you, know, you have water, uh, water hoses that go up to the top and all those kind of things. They were chock full of every kind of stage of sewer fly imaginable. And obviously had to pull everything out of there to toss it in the trash. And uh, had called an exterminator. They came and did their work on the, on the thing. And here's, here's, here's the awful part. They used the fridge when they came back. <laughs> I don't know if that was just like, uh, maybe, if, maybe if it was modern technology, I could have sent some pictures to them. They wouldn't have done that. But from my vantage point, I would have never used the refrigerator again. <laughs> Uh, but the point is, for us, refrigeration is normal. Preserving food is normal. It's just the way we live. Like, it, it, you can't imagine life without it. But in the first century Israel, it wasn't. And so when, you speak, when they speak these kind of 
uh, metaphors into their world, I want us to put the lenses on what it would, look, what it would be like to, to hear this. I was in the first century of Israel or the Roman Empire. And I want us to bring that kind of freshness to these images to see their power. And so we're about three weeks into our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. We spent the first two weeks on the Beatitudes. This is the first little section, the little intro, and these are really are the kingdom values, the, the identity or how we are to live and function as people in the world impacted by the gospel. That's part of what's happening in the Beatitudes. But there's a shift that is taking place here. And the, the shift that takes place here from here on out is that he begins to talk about what do these Beatitudes look like and lived out. But in particularly, the very beginning of that, he's going to be speaking to our role in the world. Here are the kingdom values. What role do these kingdom values have in the world where you live, work, and play? That's where Jesus is going. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and there's a uh, quote here that kind of describes the shift that's taken place. He says, we pass, therefore, from the contemplation of character of the Christian. That was the Beatitudes, who we are, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, those things, to the consideration of the function and purpose of the Christian in this world in the mind and purpose of God. In other words, in these verses that immediately follow, we are told very clearly the relationship of the Christian to the world in general. So if you come into this morning and you at all wonder, at any point in your life, what is my role in this world? Jesus has a lot to say about it. And he wants to speak to us in this metaphor of salt and light. So the big picture of what I want us to see this morning is this. As salt and light, and it'll be on your screen, as salt and light, we are distinct from, yet connected to the world. We're to be distinct, yet connected. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you today, uh, we come as a people who are broken, who struggle with sin. There's not one of us that are allowed in your presence this morning because of our amazing spiritual resume this week. Every one of us just bring in a resume from the weekend of, of ways we failed to love others, ways we struggled, ways we complained, ways we have gone away from your purpose for our life. But the good news is that we can gather in your presence and it has nothing to do with us. We are resting in you. And from that state, God, you are calling us to live out a grand vision for life in this world, to be salt and light. And so, God, you know how each one of us are coming in and you know what we each need to hear. And I pray that you would do what we have no power to do, which is to make your word come alive to us this morning. Would you help us, God, to meet us where we are, to know what it means to be salt and light? Help us to look upon this passage with fresh eyes and fresh, hear with fresh ears. It's your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin with this point that we are distinct from the world. And we're going to see this in verse, just those short statements in verses 13 and 14, where we see, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. There's obviously, you see the balance between those two things, but he's using these two metaphors to describe the role we'll play in the world. And it's part of our identity as his followers. But I wanted to, want you to notice here that part of this role is the reality that there is a distinction between Jesus' world and the disciples. You see the distinction. There's salt and the earth. You see there's light and the world. There's a dis clear distinction there. These metaphors of salt and light are, describe us as his disciples, that we are distinct from the world. And so I want us to think about that a little bit more. And we're going to begin with the metaphor of salt. 
And so salt was primarily in, in their day a preservative that you rubbed into meat and it prevented the growth of bacteria and it kept the meat from spoiling. Now, it's primarily in our day a flavoring. Now, it was used as a flavoring in their day too, and that, that's part, I think, part of that metaphor here, but primarily it was a preservative. It was necessary to keep meat from spoiling. And this metaphor says something about the world and it says something about Jesus' disciples, that they are distinct from the world. What does this metaphor tell us about the world? The world around us is broken. It's infected to the core with the bacteria of sin, and that sin is doing its work every day, and the result is the deterioration and the spoilage of life around us. And we see it. Listen, you can go read the headlines, and it's clear there, but we can just also wake up and look around our house every day. Right, Because this spoilage of sin, this bacteria of sin that is infecting everything and spoiling life around us, it's infected our life as well. We see this all around us. But Jesus is saying here that there is a protective and a flavoring aspect of our identity and our role in the world. What we believe and the way we live is meant to deter deterioration and spoilage and be a flavoring. And so what's, what's beautiful about how Jesus has arranged this is that these this call to salt and life comes immediate, salt and light comes immediately after these beatitudes or these kingdom values or these things that Jesus is saying who we are to be. And there's a purpose for that. Because the, one of the primary ways we're salt and light, we just look back a few verses and we see it. The values that we as his disciples are to hold. So I want to give you a couple illustrations of this. You can think about the beatitude that said the blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, our culture tells us that blessed are those who are self-sufficient. Blessed are those who believe in themselves. But Jesus is saying, blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty and need. There is a distinction, an unbelievably broad distinction between the world and his disciples. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. But our culture tells us to put yourself first, to build your brand, to make yourself central at any cost. Jesus says, blessed are the humble. Blessed are not trying to make themselves first in everything that they do in life, but are gentle. That's a distinction. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, our culture tells us that blessed are those who hunger for fame, wealth, and pleasure. But Jesus says, those that will be filled are not the ones that hunger for those things, but who hunger to be like me in righteousness. That's a distinction. And so these distinctions, when they're lived out in our lives where we live, work, and play, will naturally function as a preservative and a flavoring in our families, in our workplaces, and communities. I mean, you think about a home where the husband and wife hunger and thirst for righteousness. Porn is ubiquitous in our culture. It pushes that out of the home. It's a flavoring. It's a preservative. I mean, you think about who do you want to work with beside you? Who do you want to hire in your business? Do you want to hire the one who is able to admit wrong because their core value is poverty in spirit and meekness? Or do you want to hire one that will cover all their inadequacies at any cost? As we live out these beatitudes, it, they function as a preservative that prevents spoilage all around us. But Jesus says there's a danger for his disciples to lose their saltiness. We see this in Matthew 13, 513 on the screen there. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
John Stott, a scholar, writes this about uh, the saltiness part. He says, sodium chloride is a very stable chemical compound which is resistant to nearly every attack. Nevertheless, it can become contaminated by mixture with impurities, and it becomes useless and even dangerous. I want to give you some thoughts on this, but the, the richness of the salt and light metaphor, I would encourage you to please walk away from today and think about this more. Think about these Beatitudes. Think about our life. Think about where you live, work, and play. What does it look like to live these things out? It's rich. But when Jesus warns here of salt losing its taste, it means that we can be diluted and contaminate our role in the world. And so when we do not live out the Beatitudes in our lives, when we conform to consumerism around us, when we discard unpopular biblical teachings and ethics that aren't in line with our culture, when we discard those things, when we don't live out these Beatitudes, or even when we hold a biblical viewpoint, but we don't hold it in a merciful way, what's happening? We're contaminating our saltiness. We're losing it. And ultimately, we don't function in the role that God has us in the world. That's what he's challenging us to think about here. But then we have this metaphor of light that builds on this as well. And I don't know if you guys have ever been in a place of total darkness. I don't mean in your room with the, you know, the nightshades pulled down. Uh, so many of you have probably been to Mammoth Cave. Our family went there uh, last year. And they take you far back in the back part of the cave. And part of their whole experience is they cut out every light. And at that point, you are literally in total darkness. Like you put the hand in front of your face, you cannot see it at all. And it is cool for a fraction of a second. And then you think how terrifying it would be to live in that kind of darkness. And just a little flicker of a match would provide, would, it, would I mean, just think about the total darkness there and just one match would overcome the darkness and would bring a sense of warmth and of comfort and of security. That's what he's speaking about here. There wasn't a lot of light pollution in first century uh, Jerusalem, right? And so they knew what total darkness was. And they knew what it, how difficult it was to function in that kind of environment. And then they would not have known all the scientific processes, but ours now realizes how critical light is to just feeding the whole world through photosynthesis, right? To grow the things that we live off of. Light is powerful in its effect in the world. And this, more, this, this metaphor says something about the world and us as well, that we're distinct. So the world around us, what's this tell us about the world? That it's in darkness, that it lacks the light of the gospel, that the world in its darkness cannot see what is truly worthwhile to live for. Isn't that what just Ecclesiastes, our sermon series, just walked us through? Is that when we don't factor in God, we chase after everything in this world, life's pleasures and pursuits, to give us a sense of gain, and it doesn't deliver. It's a chasing after the wind. The world is in darkness. 2 Corinthians 4 4, it won't be on the screen, you can go look at it, tells us that this sin has blinded us from seeing the beauty of Jesus in such a way that we would want to follow him. The world lives in darkness. But Jesus is saying in this metaphor, there's this productive aspect to our identity and role in the world. That what we believe in the way we live is meant to bring light, to reveal what's true and good and beautiful. And verse 16 says that it is even meant to point us back to see the glory of who God is. That's what our light is meant to do. And you think about the connection here in the Gospels. Jesus is the ultimate light of the world. 
So what does it mean that we're lights? That He's living inside of us and His light shines through us to the world. That's the beauty of what He's communicating here. And again, how can you envision yourself being a light in the world? You just go a couple verses back and look at the Beatitudes. Think of the distinction about the peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Think about the light of a peacemaker in a workplace. Someone who deals with conflict in a healthy way. That's willing to shine light on the truth of a situation. That's willing to admit where they're wrong. And that seeks reconciliation. How much does that push back the darkness of what our sin wants to do in relationships? I mean, you can think about this in the salt one as well. What spoilage does a gossip bring to a workplace? And what would a life would a peacemaker bring? Think about Jesus' statement of blessed are the merciful. Think about how dark this world would be without the merciful among us who would move towards the collateral damage of sin and the misery around us and seek to meet it not with a judgmental heart, but with a heart of mercy. Think of how dark this world would be without the merciful. Think about the truth of the gospel. It underlies and empowers these beatitudes so that Jesus' disciples can live out as beacons of light. And so these distinctions will function as light in our families, our workplaces, and communities when we're living these things out. But despite this role, you and I are going to wake up every morning and we're going to feel the pressure to mute this distinction between us and the world. So just literally a couple of verses before, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. The world doesn't like salt and light. To be salt and light is inviting uh, a pressure upon us, a threat upon us to be rejected, to be outcast, right? That's going to come upon us. Salt preserves what could rot. Light exposes darkness. Well, Dick Keyes in that book, Chameleon Christianity, he, he describes to the succumbing to the pressure and trying to just mute our distinctions in the world as being like a chameleon, right? And so what does a chameleon do? A chameleon changes its color as an adaptive strategy to deal with some kind of pressure. You and I are going to feel this every day. And, and here's what's interesting. Some of the pressures will affect some of us and some of us, different pressures will affect us. And you might think, oh, I would never be a chameleon. And what you think about is discarding maybe a biblical viewpoint, but you become just like the world and everything else. Each of us in our own unique ways feels the pressure to conform and blend in. It's an adaptive strategy. It's a protective way to push back the threat of persecution. I want to, I want to mention a few of these that I think are pressure points in our culture. You'll see these on the screen. One is money, possessions, consumerism. It is the norm in our culture to be on a continuous quest to increase our standard of living and measure our security by our bank account. This is the absolute norm around us. No doubt we will feel pressure to mute our distinction with our generosity and sacrificial living. We're going to feel pressure there. Think about political beliefs. It's the norm in our culture to look to our political ideology to secure a bright future we long for. And not just that, because we hold such a high regard for our politics, we then look down upon everyone else who doesn't hold the same political viewpoint. That is a pressure around us, all around us. Some of us in this room don't feel that pressure. 
Some of us in this room, it's all the time we feel that, and we want to mute it and, and, and blend in with the world in this way. Think about the vision for sexuality and a sex ethic. It's the norm in our culture for the foundation of sexuality to be whatever we want it to be and whatever is right in the moment for us. That's a real pressure. And again, some in this room feel that pressure and want to mute that distinction. And some of us don't feel that pressure. Here's what's interesting. I think sometimes we get in our mind that, that not succumbing to the pressure means we're a self-righteous punk about our viewpoints. But if we go back to the Beatitudes, and salt and light describes how we really function, does the merciful hold a different viewpoint than the culture in a self-righteous way? Would the, those who mourn and are poverty in spirit hold a different viewpoint from our culture in a self-righteous way? Absolutely not. They would hold to the truth, but do it in a merciful and just way. So we see that here. Another pressure point with our culture is achievement in our career. It's the norm in our culture to measure ourselves based on our job title and what we've achieved and to do whatever it takes to achieve to the next level. To sell every, whatever, whatever relationship we need, to sell our integrity, it doesn't matter. Some of us feel that pressure. You think about relative truth. It's the norm in our culture to think that we as people get to define what's true. And then holding the Bible true for every person and every culture and every time is arrogant and bigoted at the same time. And so we feel the pressure to mute that distinction in our view of the Bible and what it teaches about truth. This is all around us. These are just a few areas where we're going to feel pressure to conform and lose our distinctiveness. I feel it. I mean, I, I find myself in groups of people where I feel the pressure to mute the distinction I have with them at that given point. To blend in. Because I don't want to be different in that sense. But you want to know something encouraging? If you're a student of church history and know a little bit of knowledge of first century Roman Empire, you realize that the readers of this, the original hearers and readers of this, who were Jesus' disciples, would feel much of the very same pressure points that we would. Their view of money, their view of achievement, their view of truth, their view of sex were radically different than the vast majority of the Roman Empire. And here's what's interesting. As church, as church historians look back and don't know how to explain the exponential growth from a few followers of Jesus in the first century Israel to the vast majority of the Roman Empire three centuries later, they land on a couple things, and one of them is the distinctiveness of their lives. Salt and light did its work. We think I've got to mute my distinction in order to be attractive to the world, Would really in order for me to be safe in my interactions with the world. But Jesus is saying there is real power in being salt and light. I've used it, and I can use it again. And that's the picture we get here. So is your life distinctly different from the world around you? Where do you feel the pressure to mute that distinction? Does your life function as light that exposes the darkness and reveals what is true and good and beautiful? If we lose our distinction, we do lose our purpose. But there's another aspect that we see in these metaphors in salt and light, that we're not just to be distinct from the world, but we're be connected to the world. There's a responsibility in our distinction. One, one commentator describes it like this, is that the Beatitudes 
can't be lived out in a purely private way. There's a public interaction that comes with every one of them. And so just think about that for a minute. Think about what's embedded in this metaphor of being salt. Salt must be on something to bring flavor or prevent decay. Meaning salt must be connected to what it's distinct from. Salt has no ability to preserve meat unless it's connected and rubbed into the meat. If it's not, it loses its function and its purpose. It has to be connected there. John Stott says this, the quote will be on your screen. He says, Christians are set in secular society by God to hinder this process, meaning the process of deterioration. God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. And when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach with the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? No one blames unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is where is the salt? And so distinct from, but connected to the world. But you see this with light as well. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 on your screen says this. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and give light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Light must not be hidden, meaning light must be brought into the darkness. Our lives must be connected to people's lives who are different from us. Otherwise, we cannot fulfill our purpose. That's what he's getting at here. And so, in some ways, what we mentioned before was the pressure to lose our distinction because we don't want to be different and we don't want the costs that come with being different. But another way we manage that pressure, because we all feel it, is not necessarily to lose our distinctiveness, but to lose our connection to the world and to isolate ourselves. Dick Keyes, in his book, Chameleon Christianity, he speaks about that losing distinctiveness as the pressure of a chameleon, but the other pressure he mentioned as a musk ox. Now, I've never seen a musk ox, so I'm going to show you a picture of a musk ox. Musk ox. Hard to say that ten times fast. Uh, what is the strategy of the musk ox? If the strategy of the chameleon is to blend in when a threat comes, the strategy of the musk ox is to circle around, to circle and isolate and protect themselves from what's coming in to them. And you can see that in the bottom of that screen with the wolf. And so what could it look like to function as a musk ox? That we form a protective or defensive circle and we isolate ourselves from the world around us. This can be the extreme version where we only engage in things that are obviously connected to the name Christian, right? Music, entertainment, school, friendships, you name it. Everything has to be Christian. And I'm not saying any of those, those things are wrong or bad in of themselves. But I'm saying if, if we are fully isolated and not connected to people who think and believe different from us, then it's hiding the light. There's no other way to see that. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Or it can be very subtle. And this happens all the time. We become a follower of Jesus and you experience a richness and depth in relationships inside the Christian community that is new to you. And before long, five, ten years later, you look up and there's not a person around you that you can call a genuine friend who has a different biblical worldview than you. 
Some of us look at that and say, yes, that's great. Jesus is saying, no, that's not functioning the way I've called you to live in this world. And I think we've got to come to grips with hiding our light is not a better option than losing our saltiness. It's not the better alternative to losing our distinctiveness. That's not what Jesus intended for our disciples. In John 17, the longest prayer of the Bible that we have recorded from Jesus, you know what he prays for you and I? He says that we would not come out of the world, meaning that we would not be disconnected from the world, but we wouldn't be like the world either. We would be in the world, but not of it. We would be connected to the world, but distinct from it. That's the heart of Jesus for you and I as we live out these Beatitudes. In a failure to be distinct or a failure to be connected, both are failures in our role in the world. We can't justify one with the other. Jesus doesn't give us that option. He's got something far better for us than settling for one or the other. So Jesus has radically transformed a people with a purpose. They live out kingdom values and their salt and light in their community. We're to be distinct from, yet connected to the world. So where do we go from here? I want to give you two points of application. I think these will set us up uh, very well to receive the elements this morning. And the first one is this, and you'll see it on your screen, is to evaluate your life where you live, work, and play. God has given you a sphere of influence in this world, and no sphere of influence is better than the other sphere of influence. Where he has put you is where you live, where you work, and where you play. That's where God has sovereignly ordained you to be. And I think a right call for us when we walk away from these scriptures about salt and light is to evaluate where we are in that. Are we functioning as salt and light where we live, where we work, and where we play? And to wrestle with that question, we've got to wrestle with both are we distinct from and connected to the world around us? And so are the Beatitudes present in an increasing measure in our life? Does the way we handle our money, our work, our relationships, our political beliefs, our entertainment, our sexuality, are these distinct from the culture? Or do we find ourselves floating down the lazy river of whatever our culture blesses in that area? And beware of maintaining your distinction in one area and using it as a justification for not being distinct in another area. We're so good at that, right? Oh, look at me. I'm, I'm not like the world in this. But back behind the scenes, we're a consumer just like the world and everything else. We like to play those games, but Jesus is calling us to really wrestle with a genuine heart on how we're functioning here. Are we connected to the world around us? Do we have genuine relationships like Jesus had with people who lived radically opposed to the way he lived? Jesus had genuine, loving relationships with those who thought and believed and lived radically different from him. Do we have those? Are we connected to the world in that way? who would not be big fans of our moral framework in the Bible? What may be keeping us from moving into places where salt and light are needed? And I would encourage you, the best way to wrestle those questions is in community. Because where I might have blind spots, Shane in our interactions is able to, is able to help me see those, and vice versa. And so this is why we're putting on these discussions for this, for this, over this book is to help you wrestle with these kind of things in community. And so just another little plug there to sign up, find a way to get in one, even if you can only attend one of the uh, multiple ones going on, jump in one. And, and here's, here's the beauty of the gospel. Of course we all struggle with the, 
with the pressure to both mute our distinction and to isolate. We're broken people. But the gospel tells you you're not salt and light because of something magical inside of you because you're just better than everybody else. The gospel tells us that we're salt and light because we've come back to the Father to confess our sins and ask Him to come into us to change us. And Jesus has paid for our forgiveness and promises to continue to empower us to live out these kingdom values and be salt and light where we are. And so the beauty for us this morning, we can actually evaluate where we are because we can come back to the Father. And He invites us to receive forgiveness for the ways we mute our distinction or or isolate ourselves and to be brought back into fellowship with him and be empowered once again to be salt and light. And then second, my point, a second point of application for you as we walk away would be to recognize the power of your life where you live, work, and play. Jesus is communicating something profound about his people and in the world with this role of salt and light, that we have great power when we are distinct from and connected to the world. Both go hand in hand. We have great power. The gospel you and I hold to has great power. But the lives that are transformed by that gospel, when lived out, distinct from and connected to the world, have great power as well. That's what Jesus is wanting to communicate here. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, an aspect of your identity is that you function as salt and light where God has placed you. And here's what's beautiful about this is that when you and I wake up on Monday morning, we're going to go to our different jobs or careers or different ways we are connected in society uh, if we're retired. And our culture ranks those, right? In our culture's eyes, there's different careers that have different values and different, all these different things. You know what Jesus is saying? Irregardless of what the world thinks about what you, you do when you wake up in the morning, you move in that into arena as salt and light. And that breathes brings unbelievably great dignity and purpose to everything you could do on Monday morning. How you handle yourself in your workplace, how you treat your kid on the playground, how you handle your schoolwork, all of those things are salt and light in our community. And Jesus is saying you have profound purpose in each and every moment of your day that you live on this earth as salt and light. And even as a church, our Grace for the City vision is us thinking corporately, what does it look like for us to be salt and push back the deterioration of our community by valuing families, right? What does it look like for us to be light as well, to push into the college campus, to push into our community in these different ways, to open our building to a place where kids can be in a safe place to interact with family members that have not interacted with them in safe ways? That's what this is, us to be salt and light. So wherever you live, work, and play, and you're a follower of Jesus, you're to be distinct from the world and connected to the world because you are salt and light. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us a profound role in this world. We couldn't dream up a role like this. And yes, this role to be salt and light, to have a distinction and be connected to the world is going to invite trouble and danger and challenges and tricky situations. But we are walking the ground that Jesus has walked. That is the very thing that he was. Everywhere he went, he was salt and light. 
And we as his followers are just wanting to do the very same thing. So God, would you meet us here? Lord, where there is a distinction that we have muted and failed to be sought, where there is a way we have loved the darkness rather than exposed it, where there are ways we are disconnected from the world that you love, I pray that you would bring conviction. And even as we come to the table, that you would invite a healing and a forgiveness to come into us. And would you help us, both individually and all the places we'll step into this afternoon and tomorrow morning, to be salt and light. Would you help us corporately to be that as well, Father? We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you give us a role to play in this world. It's your name we pray. Amen.